and I need a glass of water, <clears throat> which I've got one. I want to welcome you to, to Hagerstown Church. It really is a privilege of mine to be, to be sharing the Word of God with you this morning. And, and to, right before we jump into our time together in the Word, I want to go ahead and take a moment to dismiss Hubtown Kids ages 3 to 5. And so if you're in ages 3 to 5, at this time you can go to my right, your left, head over to see uh, Miss Sarah and Miss Micah. They've got a fantastic lesson for you this morning. They're going to be talking with our kids this morning about this, this fact about God, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-knowing. It's hard for us to believe that our parents don't know everything. Wives, is it hard for you to believe that your husbands don't know everything? In contrast to God, they really don't, and God does. The kids are going to be learning a little bit more about that this morning. And we're going to be learning more about what the Word of God says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. So if you have your copy of God's Word, the Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some available uh, back here to my left. We also have it available for you on the screen, and so feel free to, to check that out <clears throat> and to follow along with us as we read God's Word. So starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, this is what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am, poured, uh, am, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad." And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, these are your words. And we ask a hungry people that you would feed us through your word this morning. That we would feed on Christ and be encouraged and corrected by it. And we ask that these things be done, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Several young friends had made their way into this deep cave. They took with them everything needed. Two flashlights, in case one died, and one rope. And so, rope in hand, mud covering them from head to toe, they passed from one chamber into the next, deeper and deeper into this cave, navigating underground cliffs and crevices, columns and pits. And at some point, the extra flashlight died. Did anybody else here just get a little bit more nervous? The walls get a little bit closer, and then there was only one flashlight. But they continued to move on. That's all they needed, just one flashlight to move on throughout this cave. As they came to a specific decline there in the terrain, they employed the rope. One by one, they went down that rope. And as they descended, holding the rope, the others would hold the flashlight until it came to the last one. And needing to hold the rope with two hands, he decided to toss the flashlight to the gentleman at the bottom of the rope. Toss the one and only flashlight. Again, are you getting a little more concerned? Are you getting a little more constricted? 
He tosses it down to the others. And as the light floats through the air, the air in the spelunker's lungs gasped. Their throats got tight. You see, that one and only flashlight landed with a crash, and the lights went out. Often the Bible speaks of this world as being a dark place spiritually. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus coming into the world and shining in the darkness provided light for all around to see. The world had become crooked. The world had become twisted as it relates to the will of God. No one wanted to obey God. Everyone had turned to his own way, doing what was right in their eyes, having no regard for their creator. Darkness everywhere. Jesus speaking of himself in the context of darkness and concerning this world, he says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Hagerstown Church, Jesus is the light of the world. And we walk in darkness. And yet the light of Christ shines abroad. Why? Because of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus also speaking. Maybe you remember and memorized this last year in our reading Jesus says, you are the light of the world, speaking of his church. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, we have the light of Christ. And Paul tells the Philippian church, I have seen that light in you. Paul says, that light, that light of Christ, I saw it shining in you while I was with you. Don't cover it up. Don't forsake it. Verse 12 of our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There was a great need in the days of this letter for the church of Christ to let their light shine. And there is that same need this morning here in Hagerstown. Verse 15 says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, a dark generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you get one thing from the message this morning, one main idea, here it is. Christian, let your light shine. Christian, you have a light in you. I've seen it. Let it shine. Maybe I've lost all of you as you begin to digress into singing children's songs, This Little Light of Mine, and yet it's actually not a children's song. I won't sing it for you this morning, I'll spare you, but I guess I could handle that echoing in your mind as this sermon goes along. This Little Light of Mine, Hagerstown Church, would you let that light shine? Paul says, I saw it in you, church at Philippi. And this morning, we say one to another, one of the other, I see that light in you also. As we contemplate this idea of 
The Christian letting his light shine. And as we work through this passage, I want to help to uncover three answers that this passage gives. So three questions, rather. The first is this. What does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? What does your light shining accomplish? Second, we'll ask this question. How does it work? How does your light shining actually work? And finally, we'll ask this question, and I believe we'll find the answer. What does it look like? What does light shining, emanating out of the Christian in their context, within the darkness of this present world, what does it look like? Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, we're going to back up just a little bit. It helps us to understand the first question. What does it accomplish? What does our light shining accomplish? Verse 28 of chapter 1 says, It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, the enemies of the cross of Christ, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church. It is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation and that from God. What does your light shining do? Well, first, it is proof of your salvation. It's proof of your salvation. Yesterday, a few of my children, they found a pear tree out in the wild, and they were wildly excited about this pear tree. Turns out they're not that good there in the wild. They're awfully small and not that tasty. And yet, at the same time, they were really excited. We found a pear tree. And you might say, well, how did you know it was a pear tree? Here's how we know. There were pears growing on that tree. That's wild, isn't it? Literally, in more ways than one. There was pears. There were pears on this tree. And so we know because there's pears on this tree that this is a pear tree. One of the ways that we know that the Christian church is the Christian church is that they shine the light of Christ. That's also true, not just collectively of the church, but individually of the Christian. When the light of Christ shines in your life, it serves you, it serves the church, and it serves those around you and outside of the church to show that you are truly in Christ or that Christ's light is in you. And so the light of Christ, shining from within, serves as proof, as evidence that we have been changed, that something is different about us. It serves to prove that we are Christ's. There's something different about a Christian. This past few weeks, as I've contemplated what it would look like for me to be a part of a shepherding body that cares for First Baptist Church, I recognize this, they are, many of them, in a different stage of life. As a matter of fact, just this week, one of their own went on to be with Jesus. And I can tell you this, as I've spent time talking with the congregation, as I've spent time talking with the individuals and the loved ones, they sense this, that those who are in Christ do not die. They don't face death as those apart from Christ. But I've seen it. I've seen light emanating out from them. They have a hope that Christ gives them. They have a light that they cannot keep within there is evidence that there's something different about the christian and it's proof that's that god has saved them and so it's proof of their salvation but more than that it also 
light emanating from the Christian, emanating from the church. It draws others to, to salvation. And so it proves our salvation, but it also draws others outside of the church to salvation. Look there, it says in verse 28, it is a clear sign to them. It's a clear sign to them, the enemies of Christ. It's a sign to them of their destruction. We can be sure that those in darkness, when they see the light in you from a distance, they will know that they lack what you have. They'll see there's something different about them. Maybe you've experienced that on your street, amongst your neighbors. Maybe they've even relayed that to you. There's something different about your family. And it's not a smell. There's something peculiar. And maybe you've expressed it to them at any rate, you know in your heart, well, we know what's different about us. It's because the light of Christ is shining out. And yet some, when they see that, will rebel against that light and run from it. And at the same time, others will run to it. When the light of Christ is raised up in our lives, when it emanates out from within us, those who are without, what do they say? I want that light. As we raise up Christ... That light draws those who are thirsty for grace, that are thirsty for forgiveness, to come to Christ. And so, when we see that light emanating out from us, we know from Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, that it is evidence of our own salvation, and it helps to draw those who are not saved towards salvation. And so we know a bit about what it accomplishes. But how is it accomplished? How does the light of Christ in us, how does it emanate? How does it work? How does it shine? Question number two. Well, Jesus gives us two word pictures. The first we've already talked about. It's light. Verse 15 has this idea of the stars that govern the evening, that govern the night. On a cloudless night, though the sun is hidden, when the clouds are passed by and the stars are bright, we can still walk. We can still navigate. The one who placed the stars in the sky, who is it? It's God. And who causes them to give light? Well, again, God does. And so how does it work? Well, we know that God is working. This is the first component. When we ask, how does light actually emanate from within the Christian? How does it emanate out from the church into the world, into the darkness? Well, we know that God is working. Look at verse 12. It does say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How does this work? How is light emanating out from us? How is that accomplished? God works. The context for this bit of instruction, it's of salvation. And so we learned by, by way of this letter a few weeks ago that, that God is the author of salvation. He has begun something in the life of a Christian. And furthermore, we learned that he will what? He will complete it. He's started something and he will complete it. One aspect of salvation that is already complete is the justification of the Christian. It's complete. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, Paul writing to the church at Rome, saying, past tense, Christian, you have been justified by faith. He says, because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the actor, 
the church here in this, in this passage being the passive recipient of God justifying them and making them at peace with Himself. And now, justified, having peace with God through the good news of Jesus Christ, that work is complete. And you'll notice that in your salvation, you did nothing. If you're justified this morning, if God looks at you and says, it's just as if Matt never sinned, who did that? Who's responsible for that work in your life? God. Entirely. You know this verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not your own working. It is the work of God. It is the gift of God, not the result of you personally working. Why? So no one, to the point, to the extent that no one can boast. Nobody can claim that they've done this, that they have obtained justification by anything that they have earned or done. He goes on to say in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, the work of justification, the work of God making you right with Him, if you're a Christian, that is completed. God started it and God finished it all by Himself. Now, justification is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. When he says, work out your own salvation, he's not saying, work so that you can be justified. In context, that's done. That's completed. But there is a part of our salvation, in a sense, that is not completed. And that part is sanctification. It's an ongoing work. Yes, in some sense, we have been sanctified. When God looks at us, He sees us set apart, holy. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And yet, in a practical sense, as we move forward, our continuing to be cleansed, our continually continuing to be raised up and shaped and formed into the, into the image of Christ, into the fullness of Christ, it's still going on. And here's what you need to catch this morning. Here's what... The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes to the church at Philippi, wants you to understand that you're not alone, that God is working in you. Many of you have had an experience, a salvation experience. You've turned from your sin. By God's grace, you were able to see it, and you repented of that sin. And you claimed the the work of Christ and believed to have received salvation that you were justified. And now in some sense, you feel that you are on your own. You're on your own to to work out your own salvation and to, to clean your act up. Yes, God forgave you and He'll continue to forgive you just so long as you can get things together and move forward. And yet that's not what the Bible is teaching. Not anywhere in Scripture and not especially here. You are not alone. God is working in you. And there's two ways that God works in the life of a Christian. First, it says here that He works by effecting your will. 
by effecting your will, and second, by effecting your work. The reason why I've chosen the word effecting is because God is causing his will to become your will. He's causing you to want different things. Furthermore, he is causing your inability to accomplish righteousness. He's causing you to have the ability. He's working in you. He's changing your desires and he's changing your work ethic as it relates to righteousness. This morning, if you're a Christian, in some sense, you have a desire to do the will of God. And you may say, yes, but I lack the ability to even follow through on that desire. But know this, first and foremost, you have desires in your heart to fulfill the righteousness of God in your life that you did not have before. Some of you say, man, I really wish that I would have spent more time dining with Jesus in his word, more time communing with the Father in prayer this week. I wish that that would be the case. Raise your hand if that's you this morning. I'd like to do that. I'd like to spend more time with God, feasting in his word, spending time with him at his feet, praying with him. And let me say this. You say, well, but I I didn't actually do it. Just this week, I shared with my D group, I would really like to spend more time with God. And at the end of the week, I came back and said, it just didn't work out. Monday and Tuesday, I was so focused. I was moving along. I was, I was in my reading. I was just communing with God. And then all of a sudden, the waves began to crash in. And instead of just spending time with God, I felt the need to get work done. And I didn't have time to spend with God. I needed to accomplish God's work without God. And I felt so ashamed. But at the same time, here's what I know. God is working in my life and he is changing my desires to where I don't want to depend on myself. And even when I fail, I look back and I say, I want to be with God. I want to commune with God in a way that I didn't before. So church, be encouraged. If your desires are different today than they were last week, if your desires are more holy even than they were last year, then know this, that God is working in your life. He's changing what you want. Incidentally, as he changes what you want, he will give you then what you want. Because what you want, what you will want, is what he wants for you. So be encouraged. One of the saddest conversations I think I've ever had is with a a man who left the faith. If he ever was a part of the faith, I'm not sure. But as we talked about his leaving faith, as his his, uh, unraveling of faith in his own life, I said, what was the turning point for you? And he said, I couldn't do all the things that the church told me I needed to do. And there's two parts to that. One, oftentimes Christians are guilty of taking things out of context and heaping up in legalistic, pharisaical manners actions that we need to do that God never said we need to do. We're guilty of that. And so maybe that was part of his defection from the faith. But I think even more than that was this idea that he saw the will of God, but he wasn't patient enough to see the work of God in his life. If you desire the will of God, know that God is working in you. And just as he has changed your desires, he will give you the power to complete these things. He says it here, that he is working. He's changing both their will and their ability here. 
So justification, it's a completed work. Sanctification, it's an ongoing work that God is working in you. And so if you're waiting on that work ethic to show up, if you're waiting on that own, that righteousness that Christ has promised that you can walk in, hang on, stay faithful. God is working, he's promised to do so. And so how is this accomplished? How does the light actually emanate from a Christian, from a church into the community? Well, it does so because God is changing their desires. He's changing their ability to even walk with him. But that's not the only piece of information. It's not just God that works. It's also you that work. How will this be accomplished? God will work, work, but so will you. You will work out what God has worked in. And this language, if we're not careful, it can be a bit dangerous. So let me, let me provide some correction here or some guardrails. This language of you working, are you working out your own salvation? It doesn't mean that you have to earn your salvation. Nothing, literally, nothing could be farther from the truth. If you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus has already secured your salvation. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at the cross, he sees your sinfulness being bought or paid for by Christ and his suffering. You can't further secure your salvation, Christian. You can't lose your salvation. It was a gift. But you can misjudge whether you actually have it or not. That goes back to the first point. What does... Light shining from within. What does that serve? How does that serve us? Well, it, it shows us that there's something different about us, that Christ truly is working in us. That's what verse 16 really is talking about. Paul says, I believe that you are in Christ and that you'll continue to shine. So don't cover up your light. Don't put it out. Don't uh, continue to bear fruit. Work out your own salvation, not in a way to earn it, but in a way to demonstrate what actually is inside. The word work, it's an agricultural term. It means to really kind of gives you this idea to turn the soil. It smells like a farm, that word does. And so shift from the picture of light and a basket over the light, as Jesus was talking about in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, shift from there to a farmer in the field. God has designed plants to bear seed. He's worked in that way. He's worked in creation so that seeds will reproduce themselves they'll bear uh, they'll create they'll, they'll they'll cause a plant to grow and they'll give way to reproduction of themselves and when they're placed in the sun seeds the sun in the sky the moisture in the air the nutrients in the soil all placed by god they work together according to god's plan to to cause reproduction to cause growth and if you zoom out even farther God has placed a love for cultivation in the heart of man so that he enjoys, at least to some degree, planting flowers, right? Many of you have put small gardens out, maybe a tomato in a bucket, I don't know. Some of you larger than that. There's a love for tending to and cultivating. Know this, that you didn't come up with that, you didn't create that, but that God put that in your heart. And so God has worked in all these ways from every angle to cause things to grow and be cultivated. God works in that picture, in this scene of agriculture. But so does man. So does man. 
And by the way, when you think about that picture of God cultivating and working and then man also doing the same thing, know this, that if God stops working, what happens in agriculture? Nothing. And yet at the same time, as testified by the weeds and your garden and the dandelions and your lawn, if you don't work, it will continue. Let that serve as a picture. God is working, but he's invited us into work as well. You cannot obtain your own righteousness. If you sinned one time, you failed. You can't ever overcome that sin. And yet none of us have sinned one time. We've all sinned countless times, as it were. And to each of us, the gospel is lifted up. The light is emanating even from this word as we open it up. And we see that if you confess your sins, if you place your faith in Jesus, you too can be forgiven. You can be justified. The promise that God would not only justify you, but sanctify you and work in you so that you could work out this salvation it's yours for the grabbing as well. The light of Christ truly is inside of you. Let it out. Work the soil. This is how it works. God is promised. God is working. And he invites us to work as well. And yet there's more information on how we're to accomplish this. How this will be accomplished. It says that we're to work out our own salvation. How? In fear and trembling. In fear and trembling. There's a seriousness to this working out our own salvation. Psalm chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh. How do you serve Yahweh? With fear and rejoice with trembling. Sounds like a paradox. Sounds pretty tough. But at the same time, there's this reverence. There's this fear, but there's also this rejoicing. What does this look like in the life of a Christian? I want to give you three ways that this phrase is instructing us to work out our own salvation. First, it's, if you're taking notes, reverence God. Reverence God. How are we to work out our own salvation, church, in fear and trembling? Well, one, we reverence God. This world has lost a sense of awe and fear of God. Not only does it disregard God, but it disrespects Him. Our culture wags its malnourished finger in the face of God as it works to delete His part from this play. And yet God will not be deleted. He will not be ignored. This is His world. This is His creation. Christian, this is His church. And so what are we to do? We're to reverence God. We're to revel in his marvelous creation. We're to submit ourselves to the one who set the universe on its shelf, as it were. As it hangs in space, he will be exalted. All rebellion will be crushed. God the Son will be glorified. And as we saw in last week's passage, Jesus, before him, every knee will bow. And so as we consider what it What does it look like for us to work out our own salvation? It's a serious endeavor. And in that working out our salvation, we reverence God with fear and trembling. There's not just this fear or reverence of God, respect for God and who He is and what He is and what He's done, but there's also a healthy amount of doubting yourself that is necessary in here. 
And so if we're to reverence God, we're to doubt ourselves. That's a bit countercultural, isn't it? To doubt yourself. Well, in contrast to, to God's power and in contrast to God's holiness is our weakness. In contrast to God's power is our inability. Part of fearing, part of trembling is coming to grips with your own weakness and your own inability. Friend, at times, I'm sure if you're like me, you're lulled into thinking that you have life figured out. You maybe even have this Christian thing, this Christian life thing figured out. Maybe you're on a good track as it relates to sanctification. Oh, this is, we're all, I'm doing pretty good. I've got this. You become large in your own eyes and God smaller. We shirk the time spent with God that would be spent with God because we don't actually need Him today. No offense, God. You're great and all. Got nothing against you. But I've got this. Jesus encouraged and even warns His disciples to not disregard God. To not regard, disregard Himself. That instead they must abide in Him. John 15 says what? Apart from Christ. Apart from God. Guess what? What can you accomplish? Nothing. You can accomplish nothing. And so we reverence God with fear and trembling and we doubt ourselves with fear and trembling, recognizing we, we tremble not because of God against us, but God for us. And if we are apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so the picture painted by the words of fear and trembling, it's not a person folded up on the ground, quivering with anxiety. No, it's one who is sober, and awake to the reality of his own present condition, apart from God, they can do nothing. Nothing good. If it weren't for God working in my life, I would be lost. And that's true of every single person in this room, regardless of age, regardless of gender and history, background, it doesn't matter. It's a sobering reality and it's a precious one. When we see our own frailty, when we see our inability, what happens? We doubt ourselves. We, we reverence God. And I think tied up with reverencing God and doubting ourselves is this third piece that I would give you. And that's that we hate sin. I think fear and trembling is hating sin. There's a lack of reverence for God, yes. There's an overconfidence in ourselves, overinflated, but there's also a lack of hatred for sin. Brothers and sisters, we must hate sin. It's tied up in reverence to God. It's tied up in fear and trembling. Why? Because we are so prone to wander. And because of our weakness, because of our inability on our own to avoid sin, to shun evil, we fear and we tremble. One of the ways that we work out what God is working in is that we hate what God hates and we should hate sin. Jude instructs us to despise sin and to despise even what touches sin. And yet instead of hating sin, what do we end up doing? Whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, oftentimes we wink at sin. And maybe we go a little step farther than winking at sin. We, we give it free room and board in our lives, in our homes. There's a seriousness to sin that we lack. I think of King Saul 
He was so proud of the fact that he had captured the enemy king of God. He'd captured him. And yet, this trophy that Saul had was he had been instructed to destroy. He had been instructed to put him to death. And yet he's proud of this trophy. He had taken him as a pet, as it were. When the prophet arrives, he sees what Saul has done and he takes a sword and he destroys that wicked king. No longer then could we, he look at that sin, this picture of sin in the life of a Christian and say it's a trophy, it's a pet, we'll let it live, we'll keep it alive, we'll maim it a little bit to where it can't harm us, we won't put it to death. Sometimes we look at sin like we do our yards. It's a good idea to cut it. It's a good idea to cut it down. And yet I'll get to it when I get to it. And yet fear and trembling doesn't say I'll get to it when I get to it. Fear and trembling looks at sin and has fear, has anxiety, recognizing that sin destroys lives. It maims people. It ruins cities. It ruins families. God hates sin for those reasons. And we must too. We don't wink at it. With urgency, we cut it down. In the same way, we have to obey God and put sin to death. We don't do that to earn salvation. Again, that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not saying earn salvation by getting sin out of your life. He's saying you've been delivered from sin. There's something different about you. Christ lives in you. He's working through you. And because of that, don't submit yourself to sin. Destroy it. You've been freed from it. And so live in that truth. Those whom God is working in will work their salvation out. Think about that. Those whom God is working in will work their salvation out and they will do so with fear and trembling. They'll do that with a reverence for God. They'll do that with a self-doubt and they'll do that with a hatred for sin. Church, this is what we're called to. Fear and trembling work out our own salvation. Verse 12, Paul says, Church, you've always done this when I was around. You always worked out your salvation. You always you know, let that light shine. But he says, now in my absence, I need you to make sure that you're doing that now more than ever. More than ever. And he gives some specific instances on how and what that would actually look like. And so as we ask this final question this morning, what does it look like for the Christian to have the light of Christ shining from them, from within them? What does it look like? Well, Paul gives a few practical examples. The first is this, humility. The first is humility. And now this is attached to the, the text last week, we, but we see the, the therefore in verse 12. And so we ask, what's the therefore Therefore, therefore, it gives us this sense of completion of a thought and then an application. And so if we're to understand verses 12 to 18, we've got to remember the previous verses. What's it referring to? What's it therefore? Well, it's pointing back to the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus is one of humility. What does it look like for the light of Christ to shine from within to shine out on those around you, it will look like humility. Look back at verses 6 to 8 in chapter 2. 
Speaking of Jesus, he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. He was God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There was no lack. Do you remember that? He was God. Second person in the Trinity from eternity past. But what does he do? He empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant, the one who created all things for his service. He leaves his throne and he comes and he serves. It says being born in the likeness of men. What scandal that God would take on flesh, be found in human form, and he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. What a scandal again. Even to the death on a cross. So Paul points to the humility of Christ. And he says this about the humility of Christ. That it, again, was effective. What does the humility of Christ on the cross, what does that affect? It means that God has accomplished through Christ salvation for the church what is what are the effects of his humility that he went to the cross and he died for our sin he paid a debt he did not owe he provided by the death burial and his own resurrection justification cleansing of us of our sins that's the effect of his humility but that's not the only benefit of the cross of Christ. It's enough, but it's not the only benefit. We have the effects of the cross, but we also have what? The example of the cross. And so those who are in Christ don't just receive the benefits of the cross of Christ, but we emulate the cross of Christ. We emulate the cross of Christ. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, take up your cross. Do you remember that from Mark? Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, take up your cross, humble yourself just as I have. Yes, I've served you by way of salvation, but I've also, Jesus says, served you by way of example. This is how we're to treat others, just as Christ treated others. When they sin against us, we pay for their punishment. Rather, instead of paying for them, we don't hold their charge against them. We hold their charge against Christ. We don't. Retain bitterness, but forgiveness. We don't talk about our brothers and sisters in ways that are disparaging. We overlook their faults. We pass by them and embrace with love. What would the cross of Christ, you following in the example, what would that look like in your life? In what ways are you not following the example of Christ? You may be enjoying the effects of the cross of Christ, But are you truly enjoying the example of the cross of Christ? Are you thinking of others more than you do yourself? We covered this last point last week, so I won't belabor that point, but I do want to offer for you this quote. It's by C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. In another one of his works, he, he, he writes this. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably you all will think about him is that he has seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who really took an interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be 
because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. What a beautiful picture of Christ. One that didn't talk about how humble he was. One that didn't talk about the fact that he was a nobody but one that made much of his brothers and sisters, one that made much of the church by humbling himself. Even obedience to the death on a cross. There's something striking about a man or a woman who really cares about others in the way that C.S. Lewis just spoke. It shines as a peculiar light. It shines as a warm and lovely light. And do you know what else shines in the same manner? Do you know what else would emanate out from the heart of a Christian as they follow their Lord and Savior? Not just humility, but also extreme, complete trust in God. Humility is the light of Christ emanating from the believer and so is trust in Christ. Maybe you're asking, where did you get that from the text? Well, look at verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. It's what the Israelites were doing in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? It's a long story. Kind of pull your hair out as you read it and you say, they're just murmuring. After God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, they were slaves. They had nothing. Everything that they, literally their life's blood was being wrung out on the altar of Pharaoh And God delivers them from that and gives them a name and gives them a people and a promise and a law. And yet when they find themselves in just the slightest tough situation, they completely forget everything that God has done for them and they begin to complain. And Paul has this passage in mind, I'm sure. God rescues them time and again. He provides for them time and again. And what do they do? They complain. They complain. They wouldn't simply trust that God was their Jehovah Jireh, that God was their provider. They would experience, surely, future salvation. And how could they know that? Because they should have known that they would experience future salvation because they had experienced present and past salvation. And yet they were unthankful. They were unfaithful. They were untrusting. And Paul challenges this church. Don't be like your fathers who complained when they received salvation from Pharaoh or from the hand of Pharaoh. In the wilderness, they complained. Don't be like them. He goes on to say, and and don't argue. Don't dispute. This disputing is is disputing one with the other and disputing with God challenging God as if God has not done what is right and just do you remember the children of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness what did they say oh couldn't we just go back to Egypt and not have to do this anymore God you've made a terrible mistake we shouldn't have been delivered from Egypt we should go back now at least we had something to eat at least we we had this or we had that what what did they have the the list is so short And yet they still argued with one another and they argued and disputed against God. Even after all of the things that God had done for them, they were untrusting. And yet Paul says to the church at Philippi, and by extension to us this morning, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, 
in all things. Do all things. And by the way, the emphasis in the original Greek is on all. All things. Do them without murmuring, without complaining, without arguing, without challenging. Most Christians are able to endure some things without complaint. Most of us are. But when we're pressed, as this passage does, to do all things with a joyful spirit, what happens? It becomes a little more difficult, doesn't it? And yet the command is all things. Whatever we find, whatever situation we find ourselves in. And remember, what's happening in Paul's life? Paul here is imprisoned. Church at Philippi who loves Paul is concerned for him. And they're saying, Paul, you're in prison. I'm concerned for you. Also, by the way, I mean, it just seems like we're losing on a lot of fronts here. You're in prison. We're suffering persecution. We're still incredibly poor. We're being bad-mouthed. We're being attacked. This doesn't seem like a whole lot of good things are taking place here. Has God made a mistake? Is, is something wrong with God? Have we done something against Him? Has He abandoned us in some way? And Paul is saying, hey, don't don't do that don't go there do all things without murmuring do all things without complaining do all things without challenging god the passage ends with paul saying not just to avoid those things but to rejoice in all things paul's saying hey what i'm facing what you're facing it's come from the sovereign hand of god the persecution that you're facing in spite of that rejoice in god and trust him don't complain don't challenge him. Christian, the Israelites were guilty of not trusting God. And that led them to bad attitudes. It led them to a place of ingratitude. What does it look like for you? Are you trusting God? The things that you're receiving from his sovereign hand, are you trusting him in the, in, in the midst of those things? When things get tough, are you trusting God? When things are wonderful, are you trusting God? On the wedding day, are you trusting God? At the funeral home, are you trusting God? What does it truly look like for you to receive all things from his hand and to rejoice in them? Paul says that when that happens, it's evidence to this dark world. When you trust God, when you walk in humility, it's evidence to those around you in in this crooked and twisted generation that there's something different about you. There's a light that's shining. They're reminded by Paul here that they're already shining as lights and the challenge is to let their light not be hindered. To not cover their light. As Jesus said, think about it. Don't hide your light, your candle under a basket. What? What's the song say? No, don't do that. Don't hide it. Don't cover it up. This morning I began our time together with telling you a story. Here's the rest of the story. Light flying through the air, hits the ground, almost instantly it goes out. And here, these young men in the heart of the earth, it seems, how would they get out? What would they do if their light had been destroyed and snuffed out? Well, the truth of the matter is, one at the bottom thought it would be amusing to uh, 
pick up the light as quick as it landed and to turn it out. And so as he does that, panic ensues in the depths of this cave. And as soon as he has had enough, he flicks the light back on. And so for a period of about 12 to 15 seconds, they thought they were goners. And yet as soon as that small light, the only one that they had there in that cave, as soon as it comes back on, all hope is restored. Why? Because the way out, the path to safety is now once again plain to them. I would ask you this question. What's the difference between a candle that is not lit and a candle that is covered up? What's the difference? One that's covered up completely and one that's put out, there's nothing much different. They put off the same amount of light. Neither one of them are dispensing. Neither one of them are shining abroad. Paul is hopeful that the Christians really do have the light of Jesus in them. And he says to them, if you do, work out your own salvation. God is working that salvation in you. Now work it out. God has put that light in you. Now let it shine. And so Christian, listen, catch this. When God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks past your covering up. He looks past the, can, or the, the bushel or the basket. He sees the obedience of his son, Jesus. And yet when the world looks at you, they may only see a basket. They may only see a bushel. And they may only still see darkness. But may when the world looks at you, Christian, may they see the light of Jesus Christ. May they see humility in the face of persecution. And may they see trust, unwavering trust in the midst of suffering. What a powerful, powerful light that truly is. Hagerstown Church, let the light of Christ that is in you shine. Let it shine. Don't hinder it. Don't cover it up. Let's pray. God, we rejoice together this morning that you have placed a light in the hearts of the men and women that comprise Hagerstown Church. Jesus, that while we were in our own sin, while we were running from the cross, while we were running from God, enemies, you changed us. You put a light in us. You allowed us to see by that light our own sinfulness and your kindness on the cross. Your willingness to forgive us. That same willingness that you are extending to all this morning that would turn from their sin and place their faith in you this morning. We thank you for that. You've begun this work. You've justified us. And now you sanctify us. And in that sanctification, in this gap, you invite us to work as well. You invite us to not leave the soil alone, but to cultivate it along with you. Father, you invite us to take the bushel off of that candle. And we pray this morning in a real way that that candle would be even brighter. The candle of Hagerstown Church would shine brighter here in Washington County. And as a result, evidence of our own salvation would nourish our souls and encourage us And all the more as we raise Christ up, that those who are far from Jesus, in need of salvation themselves, that they would see that light and not rebel against it and not hate it, but run towards it and receive salvation just as we have this morning. 
Father, we pray that these things be done. Not for our glory and not in our power, but in the name of Jesus and for his glory and honor, we ask these things. Amen.